I did read this one account of three English women traveling across the plains together by themselves in a wagon. They didn't have husbands with them. They had children. They were used to genteel work, not pioneer kind of things. This was all foreign to them. And she was just laughing at what a sight they may have been to everybody else. Right, right. And I, I think there was there were elements of, of joy and, and of laughter and of, of, of adventure. And, and I've seen these landscapes that seem so foreign and yet at times so majestic. That was a historic fact that came out of these journals that I, I hadn't known. I, I had this sort of really based in the, the Martin and Willie Handcart Company's view of it's like they took over the whole story and I don't think their their story really typifies much of the pioneers experience. Welcome to LDS Perspectives podcast where we explore aspects of LDS doctrine, history and culture, digging deeper and having a whole lot of fun, learning about things that affect our lives and our faith. We are everyday Mormons sharing extraordinary conversations. Hello, and welcome to LDS Perspectives Podcast. This is Laura Harris-Hales, and I'm here today with Laura Allred-Hurtado. Laura is the art curator for the LDS Church History Museum, and we're here to talk about a temporary exhibit entitled Saints at Devil's Gate, Landscapes Along the Mormon Trail, and is also available for viewing online or in a book of the same title. So, Laura... So nice to be here with you today. Can you just give us an overview of the exhibit? Yeah, the exhibition is of three painters, Josh Clare, John Burton, and Brian Mark Taylor. They started working on this exhibition five years ago on their own accord and felt the need to paint the Mormon Trail. So they uh, took trips over the course of several years and painted little paint studies. Um, We have several, we have 92 paint studies uh, on display and then also 52 finished paintings. And the exhibition is organized geographically. So you start in Nauvoo and work your way to Salt Lake. About a month ago, I quickly walked through this exhibit and then I read the book that accompanies it and another book about pioneers crossing the trail. Then I walked through the exhibit again. And of course, it was much more impactful the second time. You mentioned in the book that the Mormon Trail is more wonderful than beautiful. What did you mean by that? That uh, is a quote from a pioneer from her journal, and her name is Hannah Tatfield King. Describing the landscape, she said it was more wonderful than beautiful. And part of that idea comes from the writings of the philosopher Edmund Burke. And by wonderful, I think what they mean is full of wonder, not just the casual way in which we use the word today. For Burke, beauty was one thing, but to invoke wonder was another, a stronger, more powerful emotion. And for him, it was a source of the sublime, that this experience of something being awe-inspiring or awesome in the 19th century sense, uh, full, full of awe, even to a point of evoking silence that it it, it is so amazing that it, it, it silences someone full of, full of wonder. And the Mormon Trail, the landscape, is so different than what they would have been used to in the Midwest or in England where they came from. Yeah, yeah. In fact, Hannah Tapfield King was from England, so for her, the landscape was just dramatically different. Today, uh, Brian Andreessen, the historian who worked on the project, 
said it would be like us visiting Antarctica today or even Mars. I mean, it's just so distinctly different from something that we're familiar with. And while they had seen drawings or illustrations, those, you know, are just a fragment of what it means to experience something in person. I've traveled myself through Iowa and Nebraska more times than I've cared to, pilgrimaging between Utah and the Midwest. And I have to admit that one of my first thoughts was that I remember more mundane than majestic in the scenery. I remember a lot of flat, and it went on forever and ever and ever. In what way is this project an idealization of the trail? Brian, in his essay, talks about it as flyover country. You have to endure on a road trip as you're, uh, you're driving by. And John Burton, one of the artists, said that when he started this project, he felt like it actually was going to be quite difficult. And there was a time the night before he and Brian were to leave on a trip, and they were looking at Google Maps of Nebraska and just thought, we've got to cancel this trip. This isn't, this isn't going to work. But I think that as they got on the land, they saw things that were significant to them. Josh talks about it as very subtle that the land is subtle, and that oftentimes people don't have time for subtleness. As you start to devote yourself to something, I think you start to see the nuances in the land. Again, this idea of idealization, all landscape painting has this root of of idealization. There's a cropping, there's a cutting out. And if you look at the trail the way that they've painted it, um, there's very few markers of people today. And so it looks completely untouched in most cases, except for some noteworthy exceptions. That's a way to idealize the trail, to make it look like you can return back to it and that it would look the same. One of the themes of this exhibit is finding the sublime and the mundane. And I think one of the keys to understanding how the pioneers could do this is to understand how bad the traveling conditions actually could be. Reading about the muddy muck of Iowa and the rain that drenched not only the travelers, but also everything they owned, helped to understand how they could appreciate more fully the beauty they came across. How does pairing pioneer journal entries like you've done in the book and the exhibit with the paintings enhance the experience of viewing these landscapes? Well, I think in some extent it gives you a double eye. That when you look at it, you look at it through your own eyes, but then you also look at it through the eyes of the pioneers. I talk about this as sort of having a, a Gettysburg effect. Like when you go to Gettysburg National Monument, it is simply a, a well-manicured park. But because you know what happened there, the lives that were lost, the sacrifices that were made on behalf of our country, it becomes meaningful. And it feels like sacred, hollowed ground. And although you're looking at grass and maybe an occasional pedestal or monument, what you see there is are the stories that you know of the people that were there and the stories that you know of the Civil War. And I think that that same thing happens when you pair the landscape paintings with the selected pioneer journals. Brian Andreessen did a great job pairing the paintings to the exact location, exact within a 10-mile radius uh, location in which they were painted, and also tried to look for journal entries in which the pioneers themselves were responding to the land. And so you see these painters, and they are looking at the land, and then you find this journal, and it's almost dug up from the grave, this voice of someone standing in that same spot and remarking on their experience. It's interesting, because if I just were to look at the painting out of context, I would say, big brown rock but it's really chimney rock. And it had 
significance to the pioneers. And then when you get the story in it, I just recently read about Phoebe Woodruff climbing up Chimney Rock as high as she could to write her name on there. It just brings it to life where you would just say, that's a rock. That's kind of nice. I, I talked about this earlier, this something subtleness. You can look at the show and say, these are nice paintings. It, this, that's a nice landscape. That would be a good experience if that was the end of your experience. But there's a lot more to take from, from that. Let's talk about the titles of these paintings because some of them are kind of over the top at first sight, except for a few. I wouldn't say they're descriptive. In a way, they are part of the story or they're creating or helping you to enable you to have a certain thought about a landscape. What do you think the titles do? Yeah, let's read a couple titles to give the listeners an idea, and then I'll answer your question. Exodus, Arise, O Glorious Zion, Does the Journey Seem Long, uh, My Strength is Sufficient, Streams of Mercy, Press On, Peace Be Still, Temple Hill, Onward Ever Onward, Lord, I Will Follow Thee, uh, Wagon Ruts, His Presence Will My Want Supply. Josh took a lot of his titles from hymns. You know, he has another title like The Impossible is Possible or Faith All as Well. And in some regard, and I tried to think of another word for this, but in some regard, they're heavy-handed. They're very message-driven. And I think what they're trying to do is have the viewer not miss it, right? Like I said, you can look and they're beautiful landscapes, and that can be the end of your experience. But when you pair it with a title that's not descriptive of the land at all, but descriptive of the experience of the almost mythical pioneers, then there's a, a question that to ask, like, what, what happened here or what stories went on here, um, what sacrifices were made here. I think one perfect example of this is the landscape Exodus, where the title, the picture, and the journal entry all work together. If you were to look at the picture, and I'll just tell you, it's it shows the Mississippi River that they're crossing. It doesn't show any of Nauvoo. So you're seeing it like their back is facing Nauvoo, and it has some white rocks we think, but it's really the ice that's broken so that they can cross the Mississippi. It's rather a serene view until you read the journal entry and you realize how horrific this scene really could be. Do you want to comment on that? Yeah. The quotes are taken from the February 1846 exodus when those few members left Nauvoo, really fled Nauvoo, into Iowa. At this point, they were refugees. And you have, like you said, this beautiful, serene picture of the Mississippi River and these craggy rocks in front. You know, it's just, it's picturesque. There's these purples and lavenders and blues and this lovely horizon. And then it's paired with these quotes. And I want to read one of them. This is Harriet Amelia Decker Little Hanks. We crossed the Mississippi River on on the ice. The last wagon crossing the river broke through. My husband, in helping to get the wagon from the river, got wet and took a violent cold that settled on his lungs from which he never recovered. He died six weeks later and was buried by the roadside between two large trees to mark his resting place. And it, well, it's silencing to think of their sacrifice. Now, not all of the pioneers who crossed the plains over a course of 30 years had the same experience as Harriet did, but what a loss. 
And then to pair it with the title Exodus, I think raises that sacrifice because it calls up the children of Israel. It makes it biblical. It makes it be of biblical proportions. And in fact, that first group of refugees called themselves Camp Israel. That was not unknown to them, that concept. And John himself is a convert, and he converted as a result of reading the stories of the pioneers. He had an ancestor that was a Mormon pioneer, and generations fell away. And to think of that sacrifice of, of losing one's husband, of falling into a snowy, icy Mississippi, and then to look at it himself and have it really just be this quite a beautiful moment, it references that idea of the two eyes, the dual eyes in which you look at the land. In the book, we have two quotes. In the exhibition, we only have one. There's also Hosea Stout, who was age 35 at the time that this happened. Harriet was 19 when that happened to her. He says, I went with my family to the Mississippi River to cross over to Iowa. We waited a while for the boat. At length, we went on to board of an old small boat and started over, the wind being quite high and the river rough. While on the water, I beheld the most heart-rending and dangerous scenes that I was ever called to witness. Stout described seeing a boat full of saints sinking while crossing the river. So this is Hosea Stout at age 35. He says, They gave themselves up to a watery grave. All was hushed, and the boat went down. In a few minutes, we saw them scattered on the surface of the water, in silence and frightened anticipation of soon leaving this world of fears and disappointments, some were on feather beds, sticks of wood, lumber, or anything they could get a hold of, and were tossed and sported on the water at the mercy of the cold and unrelenting waves. And for Hosea Stout, this was just the beginning of a very hard travel to Utah. He started off with eight people in his family, and by the time he left winter quarters, there were only two because he lost so many loved ones in that dark, cold desperate place. One thing I hadn't realized was what a struggle it was to get water. I didn't realize that before. I guess that's why they brought cows so they'd have milk. They definitely weren't getting what we would consider sufficient liquid each day. They traveled along rivers, but the Platte is a river of mud, so that's not very helpful. After being tipped off to that small detail of the challenge of the journey, I find myself looking at all these landscapes differently and seeing where would the water be. Is there a historical detail that you learned about while researching that affects how you look at these paintings? Yeah, you know, I think a lot of my understanding of the pioneers was experiences like Hosea and Harriet. I felt like the pioneers suffered, were freezing cold, and just lost loved ones all along the way. And that was my impression of all 30 years of the trek west. You know, one thing I learned was that for many of the pioneers, it was this adventure of a lifetime. And it was something uh, that they looked back to with fondness. Now, I'm not sure that that would be uh, Hosea's experience, given the, the magnitude of his loss. I did read this one account of three English women traveling across the plains together by themselves in a wagon. They didn't have husbands with them. They had children. They were used to genteel work, not pioneer 
kind of things. This was all foreign to them. And she was just laughing at what a sight they may have been to everybody else. Right, right. And I, I think there was there were elements of, of joy and, and of laughter and of, of, of adventure. And, and I've seen these landscapes that seem so foreign and yet at times so majestic. That was a historic fact that came out of these journals that I I hadn't known. I, I had this sort of really based in the, the Martin and Willie Handcart company's view of it's like they took over the whole story and I don't think their their story really typifies much of the pioneers' experience. Well, even that fact that they were handcarts, very few of the pioneers traveled in handcart companies. I think the book mentioned only 10. Only 10, yeah. And of those 10, only a handful really struggled, like the Martin and Willie Handcart Company. Another thing I learned that, and I mentioned this with the three ladies who were traveling together, there was no typical pioneer. They came from varied backgrounds. Some were used to a life of privilege, so roughing it took on a whole new meaning to someone who might have been a pioneer the whole life, like Zina Huntington. It would be less foreign. One interesting thing I noted was the different reactions of the travelers. For instance, there's a two journal excerpts describing the beauty of the Platte River. One ends with, oh, how I wish mine were a painter's pen or a poet's pen. I would portray, if possible, the beauty of the scenes which we have been called to pass. The other is shorter but ends, it is very pretty, full of little islands. Oh, I can't write no more. The mosquitoes drive me mad. I showed that to my adult daughter who saw the book and was enthralled because she loves landscapes. And she told me that I would definitely have been the mosquito entry. She is probably right, but I would have rather written the first one, which made me think a lot. How would I have reacted in the same situation? You quote Wallace Stegner, for every early saint crossing the plains to Zion in the valleys of the mountains was not merely a journey, but a rite of passage. In what ways was it a rite of passage? Well, I want to pause on that question and respond to the two quotes that you pointed out. One was Sarah Mosley Cannon, who said, oh, I wish mine were a painter's pencil or poet's pen, which is just so poetic. But in the beginning of this interview, you asked me about this quote, more wonderful than beautiful. And that was Hannah Tapfield King, who also wrote, oh, it is very pretty, pretty, full of little islands, and oh, I can write no more. There are so many mosquitoes. And I think that typifies just life, right? That, that you notice beauty, and you're also just thoroughly annoyed by mosquitoes. We were in Hawaii one time with our family, and we had been at the beach all day and gone hiking. It was just a beautiful day. And my son, who was seven at the time, had gotten bitten by one too many mosquitoes and just couldn't stand it anymore and said, this is why I hate Hawaii. <laughs> and who says they hate Hawaii um, except, you know, for the mosquitoes? And I, I think that, I, I just think that, that that points out to the, the idea, right, that Hannah is noticing this landscape and it's so majestic to her. She later says in the book, you know, the bluff ruins are very beautiful. I should like to have an explanation about them, but I suppose none know their history. They stand out in bold relief with a silent eloquence that speaks trumpet tongues to every thinking mind. There, they are looking eternally silent. Her ability to just be poetic on a dusty or muddy trail 
I would quarrel with your daughter and say, you would probably write both because that's what Hannah did herself. So we talk about the trail being this rite of passage, and and I think that that's true. I want to quote more from Stegner. In the beginning of his book, The Gathering of Zion, the Story of the Mormon Trail, he says, close to the heart of Mormondom, as close as the beehive symbol of labor and cohesiveness that decorates the great seal of Utah is the stylized memory of the trail. For every early saint, crossing the plains of Zion and the valleys and of the mountains was not merely a journey but a rite of passage, the final devoted enduring act that brought one into the kingdom. Until the railroad made the journey too easy and until new generations born in the valley began to outnumber the immigrant saints, the shared experience of the trail was a bond that reinforced the bonds of faith and to successive generations who did not personally experience it, it has continued to have sanctity as legend and myth. Um, When we talk about the rite of passage and when we talk about the pioneers, so much of it is this bond of faith, this legacy of faith, a real testament of literally physically manifesting one's faith. And we don't have those same experiences today in those same physical ways. But I do think it had this transformative effect of those that crossed the plains. I was reading the book, and I came to a landscape that moved me more than any other one had. And I thought, what is this one going to be called? Because we have these glamorous titles. And it was called Wagon Ruts. And I thought, oh my goodness, this moves me more than anything else. Because I saw its meaning on two levels. One, for the pioneers traveling at the time. Just that familiarity that someone else had traversed this route and they could do it, or someone had come before them. But then even now, this is a modern painting. Those wagon ruts are still there, leaving the indelible mark of what those pioneers went through. Is there a particular piece in the collection that you appreciated more or moved you more? Thank you for sharing that. You know, what I like about wagon ruts is this, and the Guernsey ruts in general, is that there's this echo effect, this fingerprint, this mark on the land that they were there. I think one of the paintings that is significant to me is This Too Shall Pass. It's a painting, a large painting of stormy, dark, tumultuous sky, and you can see rains coming down. And in looking at that painting, on one hand, you know, you, you think about the poor pioneers out there with all the rain and all the mud and, and what a mess it would make. I think I also think of just moments where I'm waiting for the storm to pass, where I'm waiting for the clouds to part. And I, I think that's an experience that every human can relate to. Before I ask you one final question, I'd like to urge listeners to visit the exhibit if they live in the Salt Lake City area. Or if you're not in the area, check out the electronic exhibit online, and we'll put a link to that in our show notes, or pick up the book, which you can get at store.lds.org or in the museum store. I was expecting the book to be a typical coffee table book. I had low expectations, but it is so much more moving. I was glued to it. Along with Women's Testimonies of the Restoration by Johnson and Reader that came out in December, it is one of the best books to come out this year to help us understand the experience and testimonies of those early members of the church. And it's amazing how you've done it through the words of these saints. The pairing is just crucial. 
Just briefly, in about five sentences, can you sum up what members can gain from viewing the exhibit that will help them not only understand what the pioneers went through, but how the symbolism speaks to their own lives through metaphor? You know, we've talked about this, but on a surface level, they're simply beautiful paintings, and you can come to the exhibit and just enjoy it on that level. A deeper viewing, however, reveals a collection of paintings that depict the Mormon Trail as it exists today, and paired with pioneer journal entries, the exhibition allows the viewer to be transported to the sacred and hallowed places along the Mormon Trail. Such transportation not only pays tribute to the near-mythical pioneers and their legacy, but also serves as a metaphor for those searching for a sense of home and belonging and safety today. And to the millions of toiling and stumbling and suffering refugees who live today, uh, the searching is very real. But there are also many of us just in the messiness, in the messy journey of life, who are searching for belonging. And in such times, with our vulnerability, our feelings of insignificance, our terror, our hope, our fear, our failures, our joy, we come to understand the greatness of God more intimately and in ways we hadn't before. That was beautiful. Thank you, Laura, for sharing your time with us. Thank you. Thanks so much. Here's what's coming up on the next episode of the LDS Perspectives podcast. Mormonism is just a really fun place to play. I mean, it's a great laboratory to study all kinds of things because Mormonism is right at the heart of all kinds of questions that we have in modern society, uh, whether it's about minority, majority relations, about how we organize a democratic society, the role of religion in the public sphere, gender, marriage, race, marriage. I mean, you, you name it, the, the kinds of topics that are important to us today in the 21st century. Mormonism, Mormon history, Mormon theology has something to say about that. And by studying Mormonism, we can learn more about the world that we live in. LDS Perspectives podcast is not affiliated with The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed on this episode represent the views of the guest and podcaster alone. And LDS Perspectives podcast and its parent organization, may or may not agree with them. While the ideas presented may vary from traditional understandings or teachings, they in no way reflect criticism of LDS church leaders, policies, or practices. 